it's Melissa and Heidi and we're so glad you're joining us for the Beyond the Defense podcast today. Thank you to our return listeners as always. We are excited that you returned to hear us again this week. Today we're joined by Dr. Cody Shushet, who recently completed his doctoral research entitled Entrustable Professional Activities and Physician Assistant Student Motivation. Cody earned his PhD in education studies from the University of Nebraska, where he graduated in December of 2020. And we're so excited to engage him in conversation about his research today. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Shushek. Could you please start by introducing yourself to our listeners? Yeah, you bet. I'm Cody Shushek. I uh, am in Omaha, Nebraska, and I am a practicing physician assistant, but spend most of my time um, at the, the Creighton University PA program teaching. I spend a lot of my time sort of managing the clinical phase of, of, uh, of our program and come to that through some, cl- some clinical practice in orthopedics and emergency medicine and um, always had a little bit of an interest in education. And when a mentor reached out and said, hey, we've got an opening and we think you'd be great for it, explored it and sort of took a leap from clinical practice to academia, which has some similarities, but more dissimilar than similar, and uh, and started that journey towards developing my skills in it as an educator, led down the route of, all right, so I come in with content knowledge, but not so much knowledge as a, as a teacher and a researcher and all those skills that um, are important in academics. And so I wanted to develop that. And so pursuing a doctoral degree, a PhD was made sense for me both professionally and personally, which was a nice benefit, particularly in those points in the in, in the doctoral program where it can get long and arduous and, you know, you transition to d- dissertation and there's not a, a specific timeline you're following. And so um, that was a, was a nice opportunity for me that I actually really enjoyed my program and found it beneficial. Wonderful. And can you tell us a little bit about your topic, like how you came to choose it? Yeah, so a, a little bit happenstance. Yeah, I, I was attending a, a conference and um, there was a, a speaker, Ali Tinkate, who's a, sort of the my topic, the EPA guy, um, really, uh, really an expert, and and talked in in sort of the context we know about sort of operationally this we, the this idea this assessment strategy essentially in in medical education. We're starting to know a bit more about it but there's still gaps that we don't know. And it was also a time in which P, in the PA education world, we're looking at um, you know, a, a, an increase in the importance of, of how we demonstrate our outcomes to ensure that our, you know, our students in, in the important work that they were going out and doing are, are well-prepared and, and ready to go. And sort of, it became a timely topic in PA education. There, there were these areas that we were valuable to know more about and then started exploring that. And that was one of the nice throughout my, my program was really kind of one of the nice things was that identified this general topic area early on that seemed valuable, both for me and for the profession. And then we're able to explore that and, uh, through, through my coursework and projects and research here and there that uh, was doing even before the dissertation. So it felt like, it felt like I had a bit of a head start, you know, there was a bit of a whittling down to get to, to the right scope and, and, uh, research questions for, for, for the dissertation, but that was a little bit how it was kind of a, a bit of an iterative process with this, this idea that, that was exposed to and became relevant both personally and professionally and sort of all came together in a meaningful way, I think. Yeah, it's definitely best case scenario when you can identify that topic early and start to really build a lit review with early papers and kind of whittle down into that niche that you can address 
in your research questions. Now, let, now let me be clear. I had some really bad ideas in between the, the initial start and what my final final dissertation scope was. So it's not to say that it was a straight line, but it was really nice that the, all the curves and like, oh, well, no, that actually isn't that. That's that's that, you know, that's a huge bite of the apple or that's the wrong direction to go. It's nice to have a soft landing in coursework rather than you show up at your proposal defense and boy, this just isn't, this just it isn't practically going to work or methodologically going to work or for whatever reason. So that was a, that was a, a big takeaway for me. And some great advice that I got early on um, in my doctoral program was, was use that time to whittle that down and make the mistakes early on rather than when it's a little bit higher stakes down the road. Yeah, I know from my personal experience, and Heidi, you can chime in as well, my PhD journey has been littered with poor decisions. (laughs) (laughs) All's well that ends well, though, right? Exactly, exactly. That's why you don't publish the first paper you write for your program. (laughs) That's right. We're in a little bit of a unique situation with this episode. Um, You are our first PA education topic that we've had, and I'm excited as a medical educator to engage you in this topic. But for our listeners who maybe are more traditional undergraduate route, could you take a couple minutes to explain how PA education program works so they kind of maybe have a basis moving forward? And if you would like, you can incorporate some information about the entrustable professional activities and how those are applied to a PA program. Yeah, you bet. Happy to. Uh, so our our uh, PA students, it's a, their graduate programs, our terminal degree at this point in time, you know, is a master's degree. And so students uh, complete uh, prerequisite courses and obtain a, a bachelor's degree. Uh, the, the sort of prerequisite courses are what you might expect, very sort of pre-med, the chemistry, the, the um, biologies and, and whatnot. Um, and then come into a program, most the average PA program length is about 28 months. And generally programs are about half and half. They spend about the first half of their curriculum um, in the classroom in the didactic phase. And then they transition to uh, the more experiential clinical rotations where they're placed in into clinics with practicing clinicians in a variety of different specialties. PA education is primary care based. So the things like pediatrics and family medicine, OBGYN care, psychiatry, surgery, those sorts of of disciplines, students have exposure to all of those through their program. And then students will graduate and go out into various specialties. It's about a third, a third, and a third. A third are in in primary care practicing, about a third are in uh, some sort of surgical specialty, and then about a third of those are are in um, some sort of medicine specialty, cardiology, pulmonology, those those sorts of things. And that last piece, which is where I spend my time professionally in the clinical phase, there's this question about how do we effectively both develop competency, but ensure competency. And, and, and that's really the genesis of entrusted professional activities. In the, the medical education sort of competency-based world, the competencies like patient care, medical knowledge, um, quality improvement, those sorts of things can be, can be difficult to capture in meaningful ways to, for the, both the evaluator and the, the learner to have a sense of what, what those outcomes look like. And so EPAs were designed as a way to bridge those, that, that competency language, codify it in the professional skills that we do on a daily basis, perform a history and physical exam, communicate with a, a, a patient, transition patient care, those sorts of uh, very, you know, order and prescribe medications, those sorts of day-to-day activities. It takes the outcomes language and puts that into into the the professional activities, which we do on a daily basis. And it couches all of that rather than sort of a one to five Likert sort of behavioral descriptor scale, um, which which is sort of wrought with a variety of, of 
psychometric issues and sort of the inflation of grades and, and halo effects and inability to discriminate between learners, all those sorts of things, EPAs were proposed as an alternative. And what makes them unique is that rather than asking the question sort of at the end of the day, how relatively good is this, is this learner in performing as in uh, performing clinically? The question is, how much do I trust this person to do X, Y, or Z, which sort of fundamentally changes the conversation. Now it's not, oh, well, yeah, you're a four, whatever that might mean. You know, one of the challenges always is creating that mental model of what the assessment should be evaluating and what each of those look like. So it takes the things we're doing on a daily basis in the clinic and the interactions we're having with students where we always, we always have, you know, on a Friday was in the, was in the ER still practice clinically and was working with a student and somebody came in with a, with a cut on their hand. And so the question that sort of just inherently pops up is how much should the student be doing in this encounter? Do I trust them to completely go in there and do it all? I check it over, make sure it's good. Or am I right there? Or are they just watching me? And that sort of clinical judgment, it, it, that sort of makes sense to, to I think, clinicians because it's what we're doing on a, on a daily basis. And that's uh, the nature of, of EPAs. And in, in PA education has not been, is still, there are a few programs here and there that are, that are using those, but it's still on, in its early stages of, of implementation and development um, about what that means. Because one of the questions is, all right, so for graduates, what's the appropriate level of entrustment that, that we need to reach to say that the student has um, demonstrated the, the uh, program's learning outcomes. So one of the things I found particularly intriguing in your study is the connection that you explored of taking this PA-based assessment and how, how it then relates to the student motivation. Can you talk a little bit about how those two things go together? Yeah, you know, we tend to, and I say we, you know, sort of us, the the PA educators on the ground tend to think in sort of, when we think about outcomes, we think about a lot about the cognitive outcomes and we think about the psychomotor or the skills, the behaviors that we do, but we don't think much about that that sort of third third area of, of affect dimensions of, of learning. And it just struck me that 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 emotional aspect of things is both really important and it seemed at the outset really probably significantly related to the idea of trust as as a as a marker of of performance and so that was sort of the connection that i made was boy it seems like if someone says i trust you or if they say no i don't trust you and there's this this incongruence between learner and evaluator boy that could be that could be really impactful to the learner because because of the interpersonal nature um, of that and so so that was was the the area that both i felt like we didn't know much about as epas have been studied we know, you know we're getting better sense of of operations and psychometrics and some of those sorts of things, but there hasn't been much in the way of looking at how that that emotionally impacts the learner. The literature is pretty clear in in, in saying that if we can support a, the motivation of learners, they're both more more self directed, more successful, and they have better well being. And so, it seemed like it was a a valuable uh, area to study within within the broader assessment of with EPAs. And I think that topic is important when we talk about what do we trust a student to do, but then also how do we build trust within that student that they're able to be an active learner in the clinical environment? I think 
when we talk about preceptors and we look at the evaluations when they're not using maybe an EPA model, that is, that really is lost. You had kind of said in numbers, but we also run into preceptors not wanting to put bad evaluations in for students. And then they come back and are like, yeah, but I don't trust this person with patient care. And it's mm-hmm. like, how do we make sense of that, right? How do we make sure that the feedback we're giving to students helps facilitate the growth mindset, but also be accurate and at the end of the day, protect patients? Yeah, that was sort of maybe jumping ahead a little bit, but that was sort of one of the core findings of, of my research was was the idea that that developing a sense of competence with the students was foundational to everything else. If the students didn't feel like they were growing, that they were learning, and that they were developing some ability to ultimately do the work that they needed to do, everything else was undermined. And so that was really, really important. And so you know, I think that's that's a really good point and, and a, potentially a real missed opportunity if we don't capture that opportunity to hone their their own sense of, of their, their competence and what they're able to do. You have a problem that you've identified uh, with your with your study, not in a linear path um, of any kind. But here you here you are. You have a problem. You have some research questions that you'd like to explore. And you choose case study as your method. Tell us about your thought process deciding, settling on that as your methodology and, and um, just issues surrounding that? Yeah. So, so I spent a lot of time thinking about that, the, the, the question you proposed, which in retro, you know, it, it felt a little frustrating. Like, I just want to make it, I want to make a decision and move forward with my research. But that, and, and some, some really great advice I got from, from uh, an advisor was take time, get that piece right because that and the research questions, everything flows from that. And so, so when I was thinking about the, the topic, which had sort of narrowed, narrowed down, all of it flows from the, the research questions and how you best answer those. And with the nature of EPAs not being implemented in, extensively in PA education, it's a bit of a novel thing. And so there's not, and so, then it, so the initial was like, is this more of a quantitative project or a qualitative and there's just not really the outcomes, objective outcomes data probably there that was best to answer the research questions, which I had. So we can, that, that was a bit easy. Like it, this, this seems more of a qualitative process. Like that's, that's how we're going to get to a better understanding of this. But then it was, all right, so thinking about this qualitatively, what sort of methodology is gonna, going to, to help? And initially it was thinking like something like a, a phenomenology would be a good approach but but as I, I got to sort of look more at it, what I didn't I didn't really want a sense of their the essence of the experience to them, although that would be valuable. I wanted to be sort of more directed and exploring within within constrained bounds, really deeply and extensively, specific portions in that experience. Um, and so a case study narrowly bounded was was a, a good fit. For me, that deep exploration is really like, I really wanted to dig into like, oh, well, they told me they didn't trust me. And that really kind of hurt my feelings. And, you know, so tell me more, like, let's dig deep in, um, into that. And so that, um, that fit pretty well. And then the other aspect of it is that the context and the settings that the, that, that this occurs within is so, it's just so complex. You've got the clinical learning environment, you've got patient care, you've got the preceptor themselves, you've got the other ancillary staff in the clinic, you've got the PA educators away from that. And so all of these things are interacting in, in inside of an intrapersonal relationship um, or educational alliance between the learner 
and the and the preceptor. And so with all that complexity, I really wanted to be able to dig in and a case study allowed me to do that. And practically within, because of those tight bounds, the, with a few different um, pieces of data, but, but was a, was a very sort of approachable and practical way, I think, to, to study that, which, you know, you got to answer the questions as best you can, but there's also a a piece of pragmatism that I think fits with, you know, when you're conducting your dissertation, like the, the, you know, as they say, the best one is a completed one. And so a case study fit well with, with, uh, with that. I'm always curious about this next question, which is challenges and successes you had with your particular method. And, and I think that's because I had I struggled so much with some of the aspects of my own data collection and interviews and and things like that. But are there things that looking back, looking at the both data collection and data analysis process that you felt like were particularly challenging or or you you felt like, wow, I just had a major breakthrough, like case study that this is the way to go because X, Y, and Z? Yeah. So, so my data collection, I think inherently as I developed a plan sort of made sense to me. So I did two primary data uh, collection sources. One was a, a prompted immediate reflection journal. I wanted their raw take on like, how do I feel right now? And so uh, I had them complete that electronically. And then within, I think it was, most of them were with within three or four days, but within a week then did in-depth one-on-one um, kind of 60 to 90 minute uh, interviews really dissecting that a bit further on their experience. So I think that was valuable because yeah, I got sort of different the, that raw emotional piece of it, but then also got the more reflective. Now I've had a little bit of separation, which was which was nice, but also pro- created a challenge because now what if my data is divergent? Like you know they're like this is was their initial response, and now this is different. It actually ended up that they aligned pretty well. Thinking, you know, looking at now, the, the one of the questions I have is the the mode that they them submitting, sitting down and typing out. Does that create a more polished, varnished version of of it, rather than you know the the just off the cuff? Here's how I'm feeling. Here's what I'm thinking. Piece of things. So I think that was a, a advantage of case study, but it was also a potential um, challenge too. Is is how does this data align and how do I triangulate um, the data, the research questions and the theory to pull all that together in the analysis, which, which was maybe my, I felt like my data collection and the process went pretty smoothly and maybe a little bit of background to get to that data collection piece. I created a EPA assessment instrument that I had my participants participate in a telemedicine patient encounter and then they were evaluated by a, a fellow faculty member on their performance, which was which worked well because it created a bit of a standardized experience, but was secondary to COVID. It, it was not able to have in sort of the in-person patient encounter that would have, which is another layer of things like the interaction that we have virtually is not always the same as if we're in person. But it was sort of the nature of the of the timing and and living through COVID. So. Those were some of the the challenges. The other one that the other the other challenge that I think that I'm looking at right now is clearly through the dissertation. You want to you want to demonstrate your methodologic rigor and and so case studies generally are smaller sample size. And now as I'm trying to turn that around into a manuscript, or well, have turned it around into a, a manuscript for publication, 
you know, that's a little bit of a limitation in, in my manuscript, the smaller sample size and, you know, get some kind of pushback on, on, uh, on that. But the, the process I found, I thought it'd be a little easier than this, the process from going from a completed dissertation, 250 pages or whatever it was to a 3000 word manuscript is that is challenging you know, so, uh, but that's a, a whole other thing. But uh, I think those were some of some of my reflections, both in the moment and then subsequently since. Yeah, but all the words are good words and they're all important. So you, how yeah. do you expect <laughs> me to cut any of them out? Oh, I, I hear you on that. Following up a little bit on the data analysis piece, um, we're always curious, Melissa and I, when it comes to qual studies, how do you bracket your experiences, your positionality as a researcher, as you're doing that analysis with your students? Like how, how, how was that process for you? Yeah, that was, I think it was one of those things where I knew, I knew I needed to be intentional about it because you, you just can't separate both the, the interpersonal relationships. You know, these participants are people, you, you know, and they're your students, you want them to do well. And then, you know, all of the dynamics between trying to get good data and creating that was I think that was maybe my area of greatest concern was trying to bring bring myself to those interactions in such a way that allowed the students to be forthcoming and forthright and, and, and really reflective on their experience. And and then as it got to the data analysis, then it was really a, a challenge and a, a focus to to try and think about how their experience and my experience interact and how, how I need to, to gain perspective on that. But I, I think it was mostly was trying to be intentional journaling and, and things about, about, um, about all of those things to try and to make sure that I was bringing an appropriate perspective to the, to the data analysis, particularly. Yeah, I think sometimes we talk so much about bracketing our positionality out of the study, but how do you think your positionality informed your data analysis? It was helpful because both with past experience and current experience, I was able to to see things from both sides. So the language that that they might use to describe their experience, I could understand what the terminology that they were using and how the interactions played out. I, I think that was 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 helpful to it's a balance, of course. You don't want to assign too much of your own perspective, you know, of course. And but I think it helped to understand some of that context that they were inherently bringing and describing in their in their their reflections. I think sometimes we talk so much about take yourself out of it, but forgetting that the researcher is a tool and I always like to think of the researcher as like a Swiss army knife. And some of that is our experiences and our positionality. And, you know, someone who has no experience with PAs couldn't sit down and do as rich a data analysis as you could having the depth of experience of being a PA and then working within PA education. Yeah. I I can remember specific times where a student would, would make some, some comment in there in particularly in the one-on-one interviews where if you just read the transcript, you might not, and didn't have the the perspective, you might not get that that was, oh, that was a really, that was a, a big, a big thing. Like the idea of autonomy that you can start doing some things on your own for a student to say, I felt, I felt like I could be more independent as a result of this. Well, that's really, really impactful, particularly when you think about, you know, they're going to graduate. Most program programs are 27, 28 months. 
that's a quick turnaround and they, you know, need to be practice ready. And so when I hear that, like, that's a powerful statement because I know how, how impactful that is for them to have that perspective. So, yeah, I agree. I agree with you. It's, it's, it's a course of balance, you know, it, do you, do you get it hundred percent perfect? Obviously not, but try and do your best. And I was, you know, constantly reminded, trying to remind myself to maintain that. Talk to me a little bit about your findings. What really stood out to you as you were taking all the data and trying to make meaning from it? So, so I will tell you that my first round of doing doing as much got to a very sort of operational analysis of the qualitative data and sort of presented it to my advisor. And, and her comment was, this is a good start. I thought it was maybe more than a start. Uh, she was, in retrospect, she was spot on. You know, there, there's that extra like, okay, don't just describe what the students described or the the participants described. Like, what does that mean? And when I got down to that, it was entrustability that that interaction. I trust or I do not trust you. One, the students felt like that really captures my performance and that resembles what it is to be a learner in the clinical learning environment and what their perception of what it would be to be practicing in that environment as well, which was, so that sort of just face validity that the, the students felt like the, the entrustment had, I think was really valuable. Because if the students don't, you know, they think it's not really like, well, it doesn't really capture what I'm doing. So who cares? They were bought into the, the assessment method. And so I thought that was, that was interesting and valuable as a starting place. And they really, really viewed it as an opportunity for uniquely meaningful feedback, which is a really important piece, I think. And one of the, one of the really important takeaways is that we're, if we're haphazard in our, or if we're haphazard or incomplete in our feedback that we provide with entrustability, that can be a real liability. And in in the scope of this work can, can be demotivating. Even, even those students who scored well, uh, who who had a, what they thought would be an appropriate or, or um, what they were expecting for entrustability level, they all still said, yeah, yeah, but that, that, that doesn't, that doesn't really tell me I, I need, I need more. I like, why, or why do you trust me? You know, how can I continue to grow? And they all sort of presented with that sort of Carol Dweck growth mindset. So that opportunity for unique, uniquely meaningful feedback, feedback that, all right, you got the hook when, with the entrustable piece with the, 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 with that interpersonal aspect. Now tell me more was, was a big takeaway. And, you know, along those lines, the, um, it was particularly meaningful. The, the EPA assessment was particularly meaningful from an affective dimensions. People spoke when, when participants spoke about their experience, they talked about it in very sort of, in very personal terms, the way it made them feel, the way they were nervous for how it might go, um, those sorts of things. It was, it was quite impactful beyond just their sense of things I know, things I don't know. And so that was, was, uh, was a third finding. And then the fourth was, was the nature of the, the interpersonal nature of trust and its role in the educational alliance. Uh, Shuba Ramani and, and some other folks who really published some great stuff on the educational alliance. I think this fits really importantly with them and, and how do we, through the feedback that we offer framed in entrustment, that can really support or undermine the educational alliance. So it's almost as if the stakes are higher with EPA-based assessment, because if we get it right, we can have positive educational wellness um, and performance outcomes. If we don't get it right, there's some liability there. So that faculty development piece and training those preceptors, how to give that quality feedback, I think is is really, and have a, some sort of structure in, in place, I think is, is really, really important. And in terms of the 
framing of the study in uh, my theoretical framework, it aligned well with using uh, DC and Ryan's self-determination theory to outline those. Because the, the idea of self-determination theory is those folks who have the psychological needs of competence, autonomy, and relatedness to others met, those people thrive, they grow, they do well, they have good well-being and wellness outcomes. And so uh, self-determination and intrinsic motivation were, were able to be what I found to be uniquely supported with EPA-based assessments when those students compared that to other, other assessment assessment modes. Now, these students did well and were given a level of entrustment. And so that's really an area of, of future, future research. All right, well, it went well. What about when it doesn't go well? You bring up training of preceptors, and I don't know how your institution has its preceptor structure established, whether you pay them or not. I know that's like a big trend now with institutions paying their preceptors. Um, I know ours are volunteer and training is a huge challenge. So understanding to roll out such a curriculum or evaluation system that's very dependent on the evaluator understanding it is always something that gives us a little bit of fright. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. It's similar to, to your situation. We have, you know, largely volunteer faculty. We're giving them their time, contributing to the profession and the, you know, next generation of, of PAs and to ask them to do to do more. They, and, and that's one of the, you know, in, in my sort of what's the, what's the significance of the study is that as we're doing these things, we're not just switching evaluation forms. This is, it's, it's, a, it's a significant shift in how we're, and the perspective that we bring to the, the clinical assessment process. And so we need to be thoughtful about that and need to be specific in how we, how we roll that out to make sure we do it well. And so, yeah, I think that's a really good, really good point. You talk about the benefits that it brings to students and really what you're talking about is a cultural shift of how the students will view their performance in many ways. Obviously, it's caged very well in the clinical, whether rotations or clerkships. Can you talk a little bit about how outside of maybe Sim Center activities, could this be brought into the classroom and be developed for more of a didactic experience? Yeah, that is such a great question. And I think the, the best answer is maybe. Because of the nature of entrustment, they need to be authentic clinical practice activities. So you mentioned simulation, a great way to, to go about that. There's been this idea of nested EPAs. So if an entrustable professional activity might be, oh, something like perform a history and let's just say, or obtain a history from a patient, you can do some things in this nested EPA model where you might develop an individual skill, individual skill here that build to those things. And okay, I can trust you to introduce yourself to the patient appropriately so that they know who you are and and as a PA student or whatever the case might be. And then those sort of build on each other. So there's this idea of nested EPAs. But the problem is creating real world situations. And so what we've done is we've tried to tried to map the the EPAs to specific um, when we think about uh, our either multiple our multiple choice written exams are there you know questions that pertain to obtaining a history or in our getting toward more towards simulation like OSCE activities or our patient simulation where they're graded on on how they do with cases and and uh, interactions with standardized patients those are opportunities to to integrate some of those things. But one of the limitations of EPAs is the number of data points which you need to have. Because one of the the really important points is that, as as we all know from our personal experience, there are varying differences in what in the literature they'd call propensity to trust. 
and I might be very trustworthy or somebody down the street might say, well, I've been burned before. So I don't, I'm not trusting, I'm not trusting unless they've proven 150 times that they can do this, this activity. And so that's another piece is how we pull this data, the EPA data together to make meaningful competency decisions. And largely that's come in the form of competency committees that the faculties come together and say, we've got all this data across these, these important clinical activities. Can we pull those together and say the student is, is competent or not? And um, one of the interesting things in, from, from the research was both the potential for formative and summative assessment with EPAs. And because the inherent experience that the participants in this study had was more formative in nature, there's a question of, of how that might change when they become higher stakes. And so that's a, another unanswered question. How we, how we balance the formative with the summative in, uh, in the context of EPAs. Yeah, a conversation that we'll never really have a true answer, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so were there any findings that you thought were unexpected? I was surprised, I, maybe not surprised. The students brought such a, and I don't know if it was the the nature of the power of the experience, but brought a real a real, you know, as we talked about before, that idea of a growth mindset uh, was really foundational to to the experience. This idea that I respect this this preceptor, this evaluator in the clinical setting because that's what I want to be. That's what that's what I want to get to. So this evaluation is really personally important to me, and also my growth and my ability to get to the point where I'm trustworthy is really personally important. So they really explored it, and this I think gets to some of why why the feedback was so important. Like, okay, t- tell me more. Tell why why am I at this level of entrustment? That makes me feel better and reassured that I can continue to grow and ultimately get to the point where I can be trusted to do these really important things, taking care of patients. And then, you know, another thing which I think I, I think I knew, but but certainly reinforced was that the power of feedback in developing students' sense of themselves, their ability. This idea of Rabo and, and, and some folks have talked about pro- professional identity formation, sort of this idea of putting on the role of clinicians. How does that impact the learner that, that they have this sense that, yeah, I, I, I can move from novice learner to competent medical provider taking care of of patients and making decisions. And I think that's also a really interesting area to explore further. Like how might that facilitate that that transition to them feeling like, yeah, I'm competent. Yeah, I can do, I can do things and get that appropriate sense of knowledge, but also sense of limitations, which that discernment is a really important piece of entrustment activities as well. Because if a student isn't able to, to make judgments about what they know and what they don't know, to know their limits, which is just such a core tenet of, of PA practice, then if, if, if I can't, if I, I don't believe the student knows their limits, then, then how can I say I trust them? Which on a light, uh, you know, one to five scale, you don't you don't capture that so much unless it's really explicit. And so I think that's another another thing that's uh, really really important. So those are a couple of things that um, that struck me as impactful to the students and and their their experience. So in my position, so I oversee our medical school's professionalism curriculum. When I was reading this dissertation, I just saw so many opportunities to really integrate some real professional identity aspects, both on the side of what does it mean when someone trusts you and how do you integrate that into your self-awareness? But then also, how do you deal with the fact that someone doesn't trust you? How do you maintain a growth mindset when you have a setback? 
And how do you kind of move forward? How do you how do you have the confidence in that moment of challenge to say, okay, what can I do to develop? How can I get to the point of trust? What are my markers that I need to meet? And I just, I'm really glad you said that because that I was thinking my lens the entire time reading this was how valuable this was to these students' identity development. Yeah, I think that's that's true. And, and I think that's true. And maybe this is one of the unexpected things for me too, is, is the way I started to see this as applicable beyond, beyond PA education, beyond even beyond the health professions, that any sort of professional role that a, that a, a learner moving to practitioner has, there, there's so much trust that just baked in and built into that that experience that I think that is a, is a really interesting concept for all of the sort of competency-based education models that are out there uh, across disciplines. Definitely. I mean, even take it into like a very classroom based, like any standard PhD program, that's not like research. Like you talk about, do I trust this person to move from coursework to dissertation? I just think there's an opportunity to really, in many ways, completely revolutionize how we do education and evaluation. Yeah. And there's also that question of, so, so you know, the context of this, this study and this conversation is externally, what is someone telling me about how much they trust me? But what about the question about how much I trust myself, um, which is always that balance that no matter what the what the role or the activity is, learners need to develop a, an appropriate sense of trust in their ability to, to do things, to know, you know, to know their limitations and to know where, where they're at. And so I think that's a, a really interesting, can you bring in some sort of self-reflection to that? Could EPAs be used to help facilitate some of that, uh, that self-reflection? rather than like, are you good or are you not good at this thing? You know, how much do you trust yourself to step into doing this, that, or the other thing? If you can determine how to teach someone self-awareness, please let me know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We kind of discussed a little bit about practical applications, but one of the questions I had was having completed this study and written your dissertation on this topic, what would you like to see integrated into PA programs who are maybe looking to transition their curriculum to an EPA model. Yeah, I, I think I, I think it's really important that programs are thoughtful about about that. And I think this study would indicate that, particularly that faculty development piece, the training, the evaluators, is really essential if you're going to do that. And then the other the other piece too is considering what outcomes do you expect? So said another way, what level of entrustment would you, would do, do your students, your learners need to have to progress or to graduate? Because, you know, in the, in the case of PAs, complete autonomy might be, might be their, their initial clinical practice or close to complete autonomy, or, you know, like my first, first clinical role as an orthopedic uh, surgery PA, I was very tightly coupled with, with uh, the surgeon that I worked with. And so, because of the variability in in how um, PAs practice, I think that there's some consideration. Like, what's the to make sure that there isn't a performance gap between graduation and and the initial initial clinical work? How, what level do we need to reach to to feel confident that students have met the, the program's learning outcomes and that they're ready to go out and practice safely and effectively? How do you see this work moving the scholarly conversation forward? I think my hope is that it highlights the ability to consider the import, the importance and the ability to consider some of those, what people might call the softer aspects, the, the emotion, the motivation, the wellness outcomes, because I think all of us working in 
in higher education know the importance of student wellness and 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 motivation and self-directedness and those students which are most intrinsically motivated are going to have the best experience and also have the best outcomes. So it's it's a worthwhile investment in considering our programs and how we do that. You know, most PA programs are 12 to 16 months in the classroom where you're covering, your best step to cover all the medical knowledge that's out there to, to at least to provide a foundation. And if we're just powering through that without a great sense of the impact on the learner and their ability to, to do well, I think we're missing a piece of things. So my hope is that in, as we think about educational reforms and the way we develop curricula and improve our our programs, that we're thinking about that in terms of the operational work that we do, but also in how we study what we do in the scholarship of of education. In the PA education world, I hope that that we think about those um, those things, that they're not, you know, that, that, that they're important, that they're core and essential. The affective things matter, just like the cognitive, just like the psychomotor uh, dimensions of learning. So I think that's hopefully, uh, you know, a, a, a conversation that that, um, that can continue. Would you consider replicating the study and doing it longitudinally? I know you mentioned that in your dissertation. Yeah, so I think this would be interesting. So to answer your question, yes. And I think this would be interesting is that because the entrustment doesn't end at graduation. When they move into their first clinical job, then they're with, you know, working with a team for the first time. That entrustment process sort of starts starts anew for them. And so I think it would be interesting both looking at our, our learners, but also our practicing clinicians and what their experience of, of entrustment is like and how that impacts them as well. And looking at from from their time in PA education, from their time in training, uh, through the the arc of of graduation and beyond, I think that would be would be interesting, and it'd also be interesting to look m- more broadly at at both across programs and um, the broader broader sample of participants as well. So yeah, I think I think it would be interesting to see how how it impacts learners and not, you know, not just in isolation too, over the, over the arc of their, you know, you could scale it however you'd like, but over the arc of, of their clinical rotations, does that sense of, of self-determination increase throughout? Does it wax and wane? What's the, what's the natural history of that? And we're able to keep closer tabs on that. Is that a, is that a means of an early identification of learner issues that we don't wait for the the shelf exams or the end of rotation exams to say, oh, well, they're, you know, cognitively, their their medical knowledge is is suspect, that we can identify some of those things early and and with effective feedback and identification, but we can have better remediation and uh, and and stepping into those to to improve their their experience and outcomes. You brought up exams, and this is something that just popped into my head before you had mentioned it. When we talk about entrustment, when we talk about growth mindset, when we talk about confidence as it means to being confident in your abilities in the profession, do you think that could be potential, complete hypothesis, do you think there's potential to identify students who have a high level, high feeling of entrustment to potentially doing better on certifying exams? Yeah, I think that would be would be really interesting, and and actually, it was was not too dissimilar to a, a one of one of one of my many ideas, uh, which was a mixed method study, which pulled together some of the objective outcomes data. Which, you know, sort of our gold standard is probably the you know our, our national certifying exam that students will take after graduation before before they're licensed and practicing as PAs. And I think that would be would be interesting to 
to pull those together and see, does that show that entrustment is, you know, d- demonstrates that uh, validity of the, of the assessment method, which, which we don't know at this point. And the pro- the, one of the limitations is that in PA education, even, even if we move toward, towards more programs using EPAs, there's, you know, there's this, this standard saying that if you've seen one PA program, you've seen one PA program and you know, we're all a little bit different, uh, which is true. Um, to a certain extent, it would be interesting looking at in the the physician education literature because, you know, graduate medical education residencies and undergraduate medical education have been moving along with this ahead of ourselves in, in PA education and with the um, the core EPA project that the AAMC, the I Association of American Medical. Uh, you, so in 2014, they launched a, a pilot program with, I believe it was 11 uh, medical schools to look at EPAs. And so they're really starting to sort of to your point, they're starting to collect that data and look at outcomes and see how those students do beyond their four years of medical school into residencies and eventually beyond. So I think that's probably where the richest data in that regard sits. I feel like I detected a level of excitement when Melissa asked you about that longitudinal study. Have you been bitten by the research bug? Uh, it, uh, let me let me tell you that. Well, if time weren't an issue, uh, you know, I would be engaged in all sorts of sorts of things. You know, in my sort of self-efficacy, you you go through the process and you find out that oh yeah, I can ask. You know, I think we're all pretty good at asking questions. And then you can figure out ways to systematically answer those questions that improves the work and practice that you do. So, you know, I, I think I'm a, a fair pragmatist when it comes to to research. Like, I want to know things that are going to go out and improve. Like, theoretically, that you know that that's great. But I want to know things that that gonna, are going to inform what we do and improve what we do. And so, to that extent, I, I think I, I'm, I'm I'm fascinated by the by some of the, the things that we can do and how can we how can we do what we do um, even better and more effectively. Yeah, I asked that because you mentioned turning your dissertation into a journal article and fingers crossed for for positive news from whatever journal you're submitting it to. Any any other things on your plate aside from your daytime job, any kind of research you're you're working on right now? Yeah, so along somewhat similar lines, we have a, a sort of a reflective practice program in our our program where it's sort of this informal, just important topics, getting a chance to sort of decompress on what it means to be human and be be practicing medicine and studying medicine. And I I, I think the the impact of that, again, with those, uh, the affective dimensions of learning is how, how do we create an environment and a space where students can be most effective and they can, they can learn best and have the best outcomes, both with the learning outcomes we expect, but also their experience and, and how they feel about the the learning process and their, their ability to go practice. So, yeah, so that's, that's one area that's, I think of, of interest where we're looking at that to see what, what kind of, can it, how, how can being intentional about reflection, you know, so I'm at Creighton University, a Jesuit, Catholic Jesuit institution. So, you know, it's very sort of on brand for us to be reflective and, you know, discernment and all those sorts of things. Uh, but it's also the feedback we get from students. is like, that's really powerful stuff that the, the humanity, uh, the humanity and the humanities of medicine are, uh, you know, I think important to consider, but boy, with, with all the things that we're trying to do at the same time, you know, things, things, you know, you have to, to make choices about how we're, we're spending our time. But I think we found that being intentional is about spending a little bit of time in that reflective practice. Those re- reflective practice activities um, has been valuable. So I'd like to know more. 
the humanities and healthcare is such a huge and even like a huge topic right now, I think, of discussion about we look at the disparities in healthcare and systemic racism historically and within our health system. I'm excited to see any if you do have the time, which I understand no one really has the time, I would be excited to read and, and hear about any future research projects you have on that topic. Where we like to leave this interview or this conversation is understanding that some of our listeners will be people who are currently, you know, pursuing their PhD or EDD or a doctoral degree. What are any pieces of advice that you have for those individuals who are currently on their doctoral journey? Uh, celebrate the small wins, I think, and and have a have a plan in mind. One of the things you know, I, we talked a little bit before about being strategic on the front end to set yourself up with a, so you're not start, when you start, sit down to write your, to, to write your dissertation, that you're not beginning your literature review, because I don't know, oh boy, that's that I, I was, I felt very fortunate, not that it was complete, but to have a start and know, have a sense of the literature, those sorts of things is, was really valuable. Um, and I actually, I, I'm not like a tremendously, like a kind of a journaling person, but I actually, kept a, a log of each day. And, you know, I think it was helpful to look back, like I am making progress. I'm actually, you know, and, you know, I think the nature of the, the structure of the dissertation allows to kind of chip away at these things. Like, you know what, today, boy, today was a day at work and I, I don't feel like writing, but I can format this table or I can update this. And I, I think keeping some forward momentum and even when you don't want to, just doing a little bit. It's like, it, for me, it's like when I know I need to go out for a run, but I just really don't want to, I'd rather have like a pizza and a beer or something, you know, you got to lace them up and you got to step out the door. And then once you step out the door and take a couple steps, then you develop a little bit of, of momentum. But at the end of the day, it's, it's your thing. It's your journey. And, you know, your advisor is ideally there to support you, but it's different. It's, it's, it's your project. It's your gig. You're developing the skills of a, of a, of a researcher and which is one of the cool things. Like you look back with a new title, of course, but you look back and like, I've actually developed these skills and this knowledge and boy, it's, I'm far from a finished product, but now I like, I can, I can develop those skills. I've got a foundation for that. And that's pretty cool. Um, and it's also a thing that nobody else, you know, how many it's, it's a huge thing and it's a huge commitment. It's not a, it's not, I'm going to sign up for a couple classes. It's, it's, you know, you're in it developing skills and I, I hope everyone can have a good experience, make it through and, and feel like it was valuable for them at the, at the end of the, at the end of the journey. The other thing that I did was I kept track of how many hours I spent on my dissertation and it, it was 436 hours from the day I sat down and hit the first keystroke. I don't know what that means. I, I, I is that good? Is that bad? I don't know. Um, uh, but you know, it was just sort of my way to, to keep track. Like, you know what, I'm contributing time to this and you know, the only way out is forward. So I got to keep, keep marching on. There'll be ups and downs, but that would be, would be some of my feedback for those folks. It's, it's the destination is worth the journey not to be tried, but I think that's, I think it's, I think it's true. No, I definitely, thank you so much for spending your time with us. We know that you have multiple irons in the pot and that the fact that you could spend the hour with us talking about your research, we really want to thank you and understand how valuable your time is. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look forward to hearing, uh, hearing other podcasts that you'll be doing. It's great. Thanks. Many thanks again to you, our listeners. Remember to subscribe to hear all future episodes of the Beyond the Defense podcast, where new episodes are released Fridays at 5 p.m. 
And be sure to follow the Beyond the Defense podcast on Facebook and Twitter to receive updates on upcoming episodes and to get more information about sharing your research. See you next week. 